Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. The people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we the people. The polls promised a blue wave in this month's U.S. election. Democrat Joe Biden was expected to defeat the Republican incumbent Donald Trump in a landslide, while Democrats were supposed to flip the Senate. That didn't happen. The race for president remains much too close to call, with a number of key states still counting votes. Across the Capitol, the House remains in Democratic control, but with Republicans picking up at least seven seats. This morning, Georgia is the battlefield in the fight for control of the U.S. Senate. The path for Democrats to take over the Senate has gotten very narrow. Democracy is sometimes messy. It sometimes requires a little patience as well. Biden's victory was decisive. He won the popular vote by more than five million votes and his lead in the Electoral College is strong. He's gotten more votes than any other U.S. president. But support for Trump did not wane. On the contrary, Trump received more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. The Republican Party also made gains in the House and is likely to retain control of the Senate. Trump may have lost the election, but his political approach known as Trumpism lives on. And in this critical moment, context matters. What does that mean for a GOP that has tied itself into knots defending Trump over the last four years? This meeting is being recorded. Hey there. Hi, Sarah. Sarah Longwell is here to help us answer that question. She is the founder of Republican Voters Against Trump and the publisher of The Bulwark, a conservative news and opinion website. Sarah, where are we reaching you? I am in Washington, D.C. Ah, okay. Our nation's capital. How's the mood there? Well, uh, I'm in my basement, so <laughs> the mood down here is fine. <laughs> Before we jump into where the GOP is headed, I wanted to start with a little background. You're a lifelong conservative. What originally attracted you to the Republican Party? I was young in when I sort of came to political consciousness in the late 90s, right around the time that Bill Clinton was being impeached. And I think I was drawn at the time to a party that built itself as one where character mattered, where personal responsibility mattered, uh, American leadership in the world mattered. It had, I thought, more of an optimistic view of the United States and of its role in the world. And I was just more generally kind of fiscally responsible, let's say, or, or I didn't think that sort of raising taxes and more government were the solution to every ill that plagued the nation. I always thought the GOP, especially as I got older, I saw a lot of things about the Republican Party that I didn't love. You know, I did a lot of work advancing uh, LGBT rights, for example, within the party. I, I've always thought that the party needed to modernize, needed to try to expand uh, who it reached out to and who it reflected in its membership. And so I've, I've, it's not the first time. I've, I've always had a bit of a, a sense of, hey, there's, there's, there's a lot of good stuff here in the Republican Party, but there's also a lot of more looking forward that we need to do, more reform that we need to engage in uh, to get it to a better place. So that brings us to today. Um, Donald Trump has defied many assumptions about the GOP, including its commitment to free markets. And yet he still won in 2016 
And Republicans have overwhelmingly supported him over the last four years. How did Trump take over the party? What weaknesses did he exploit? I I think the reason he was able to exploit the Republican Party and sort of take it over as a vessel is because the Republican Party for a while has stopped having things that it was affirmatively for. The Republican Party is very clear about what it's against. It's against the Democrats. It's against Obamacare. It's against a bunch of things. But, you know, Republicans do not have a plan to replace Obamacare. There's no, when they say repeal and replace, they don't have a thing to replace it with. Rather than saying, hey, here's our free market solutions for climate change, they say climate change just doesn't exist. And so Donald Trump was able to engage in a kind of magical thinking for a part of the Republican base that was very concerned about immigration, that was concerned about decline in manufacturing in a lot of the the towns and cities around Ohio and the Rust Belt. You know, Donald Trump offered both uh, a, a promise of bringing all of those jobs back. Uh, And then also he was going to build a wall and Mexico was going to pay for it. And for a lot of the Republican base who felt like people weren't taking immigration reform seriously, he was offering this sort of very blunt, straightforward solution. And so people were attracted to that. But I think it was because of the absence of ideas in the Republican Party, the absence of things that we were affirmatively for, that he was able to just kind of hijack it with a bunch of magical promises um, because there weren't other things that Republicans really knew how to articulate to say, yeah, this is what we stand for. But not all Republicans were willing to abandon their values for partisan gains. Some former party leaders refused to support Donald Trump from the start, You'd actually have to go back more than 50 years to see the number of defections from one of America's main political parties that we saw in the Republican Party in 2020. The voice of the people was heard in the land. 68 million citizens of the United States go to the polls to exercise their cherished franchise, and an overwhelming mandate is handed to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who becomes 36th president of the United States. Lyndon Johnson ended up crushing Barry Goldwater in the 1964 election after many Republican leaders and operatives portrayed Goldwater as an extremist. To President Lyndon Johnson in Johnson City, Texas, congratulations on your victory. I will help you in any way that I can toward achieving a growing and better America and a secure and dignified peace. The role of the Republican Party will remain in that temper, but it also remains the party of opposition when opposition is called for. At the level of civil society, anti-Trump organizations like the Lincoln Project have been working through Trump's presidency to galvanize opposition within the party. Sarah herself helped to establish Republican voters against Trump to help prevent Trump from securing a second term. Against Trump is gathering testimonials from conservatives and former Trump voters across the country. The message they want Biden-curious Republicans to hear is... You are not alone. These organizations spent a lot of money during the campaign running ads that appeal to disaffected Republican voters and carrying out high-profile stunts aimed at provoking the president. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump are threatening to sue a group of anti-Trump Republicans over political billboard ads in New York City's Times Square. Given Trump's electoral loss, it would seem these efforts worked. But the reality is more complicated. Sarah, in the election, voters didn't reject Trump nearly as strongly as many had expected. I want to talk about the few different groups to better understand the complete picture. 
you've spent the last three years running focus groups with Republican women. What did you take away from these meetings and what surprised you the most about the outcomes at the polls? When I was talking to them, here's what I would hear routinely. People thought things were going badly in the country. A lot of them were very upset and unhappy with Donald Trump. But there was still a healthy amount of, uh, and I, I, I don't mean healthy as in it was actually healthy. I just mean it. there was still a large amount of real fear about what the Democrats would do in power and a lot of resentment toward the media, who they didn't trust, toward elites who they not only dislike, but feel like dislike them and don't understand them. Um, I also heard just a lot of personal pain. I mean, people were very impacted by the virus, whether it was because they, you know, felt like they couldn't go to the grocery store because people weren't wearing masks or they couldn't see their grandkids uh, or they were somebody who had young kids and was dealing with mental health issues just around being trapped in the house. Like I just I heard a lot of personal pain. But it was it was not so clear cut as, boy, everything's really going wrong. And so I just really think we need to elect a Democrat. It was, boy, things are not going well and I wish they were going better. And some of them said they would vote for the Democrat because they were so done with Donald Trump. And I thought I think we saw that reflected in the election. I mean, Joe Biden won and he won with support from uh, it looks like it's about eight percent of people who voted for Donald Trump last time switched. And that was really important. And that was the narrow sliver of people that I was talking to. But even in those groups where I was talking to the most disaffected Republican women who dislike Donald Trump intensely, you know, about half of them still voted for him. And I, I'm not as surprised about people who voted for Trump last time. That that, that, that sounds about right. I, I'm a, I am a little surprised that the gender gap wasn't bigger. I will say it is hard right now parsing the exit data to get a really good beat on things. I think it's going to take a few months to sort out what really happened and how things looked demographically. But I do think for a lot of us who were looking at the polling and saw, you know, Joe Biden just demolishing Trump with women and Trump really cratering with both college educated and non-college educated. I mean, and according to all the polls he was seeing, you know, about an 11 point slide with non-college educated women. I'm sorry. Yeah. Non-college educated white women. You know, that didn't quite bear out based on what I'm looking at. It still looks like he he won a majority or a plurality of white women in the election. Women weren't the only ones who supported Trump in higher numbers than expected. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Since the Reagan revolution of 1980, the Republican Party has married two core constituencies with unrelated priorities establishment small government conservatives, and evangelical Christians. The basis of those ideals and principles is a commitment to freedom and personal liberty that itself is grounded in the much deeper realization that freedom prospers only where the blessings of God are avidly sought and humbly accepted. Trump should have been an evangelical Christian's nightmare, given how out of line his personal behavior is with the teachings of scripture. If we will not be governed by God, we must be governed by tyrants. Trump also should have alienated fiscal conservatives. According to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, Trump's policies will add nearly $4 trillion to the fiscal deficit through 2026. 
Numbers out this week show the federal budget deficit taking a big jump over the last spending year despite significant economic growth. The Congressional Budget Office has released new numbers indicating that the federal deficit has soared 32%. And even before the pandemic, Donald Trump was piling up larger deficits than the United States was accumulating over its first 200 years as a nation. Yet Trump managed to maintain significant support from both groups in the recent election. The country has gotten more and more partisan and tribal in the way that it's partisan, especially, I think, on the Republican side, although I think some of this could be said on the Democrat side as well. There's just a real sense of like who we're against and who the enemy is. And for a lot of evangelical Christians, the way that they rationalize somebody like Donald Trump, who they, you know, everybody will kind of preface what they say with, well, I don't like him personally. And I, you know, but he is this hammer, this blunt instrument with which they can push back on a bunch of social trends and other things that they don't like. And look, I I struggled a lot with a lot of the Republican rationalizations around supporting Trump because you'd hear and this isn't voters, but let's just say more like elite Republicans, they would say, well, yeah, Donald Trump is kind of an existential threat to democracy, and he does all of these very bad things that are extremely disconcerting, and I do not care for him personally, but the Democrats over here with their cancel culture and their wokesterism, I just can't tolerate it, and so I'm forced to vote for Donald Trump. You saw that played out sort of over and over again. And they would say, and look, he's done some good things. He's governed as a conservative. He's, you know, put conservative judges on the courts. He's lowered taxes. But with all of that kind of put into some one big bucket, people can sort of hang together as a, a kind of anti, anti-liberal anti coalition, even though the things that animate each one of those groups, you know, actually make them slightly not entirely comfortable alliances. A lot of the, you know, fiscal conservatives where I would put my myself in that more of that category, I, I was not somebody who was socially conservative. And uh, in fact, I I was did a lot of work to push back on some of the social conservative elements, uh, especially as it related to opposition to gay marriage. Um, but so that's always just been uh, a a a coalition that hangs together tenuously. Although look, the same thing happens on the Democratic side where you now see sort of the moderate wing of the Democratic Party arguing with sort of the AOC squad side of the Democratic Party. And uh, that is just the nature of having, you know, two major political parties that have to operate as massive tents for very disparate coalitions. Okay, so let's take a look at other groups that are in those tents. Despite his frankly appalling racist rhetoric over the past four years, Trump picked up a lot of support among African Americans in this election. And Latinos broke for him in important battleground states, particularly Florida. How should the GOP take advantage of what seems like an important opportunity to expand its political base? I think what it wants to do and what it's groping toward with sort of what Donald Donald Trump, who has no fixed ideology, but he's sort of is on something that they see as having a broader appeal, which is to be sort of a working class party. And by by doing that, they feel like maybe they can broaden this the scope of who they appeal to. And I think there are probably Republicans right now who are kind of honing their working class messaging, but doing it in such a way that is uh, less 
less tinged with dog whistle racism or even bullhorn racism in terms of Trump and trying to figure out, hey, how do we actually like we like we just had more people vote for the Republican Party than have ever done it in our history. So how do we how do we capture some of that and expand on it? We'll be right back. If you're getting a lot out of the important ideas shared on our podcast, there's another show we've been listening to that we think you'll love. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains, produced by the University of Chicago, brings you engaging stories about the leading academic research and pivotal scientific breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Questions about the Republican Party's future go beyond demographic considerations. Principles also matter. Some argue that the GOP needs to return to a classic Reagan-style agenda, focusing on free markets, low taxes, and small government. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. But many blame that approach for hurting middle and working class families. The growing gap between rich and poor Americans is one of the biggest challenges facing the country. Get this, the richest 1% controls more wealth now than at any time in more than a half century. Since the 1980s, excessive deregulation benefited just a handful of corporations, undermined competition, and facilitated outsourcing. Wages, meanwhile, have stagnated, and income inequality has skyrocketed. For the last 35 years, the median income, that is the income halfway, has not increased if you adjust for inflation for most people in this country. And that's where a lot of the anxiousness and, and the anxiety, the frustration, the anger has come from. And, uh, and it was there before Donald Trump. Sarah, I want to touch on the agenda that the Republican Party needs. You've already said that what originally drew you to the party were its fiscal conservatism and its belief in free markets. But the way the GOP's actually translated these principles into policies, things like tax cuts for the rich and deregulation, has actually offered very little to the middle and the working classes. And this is the group that's angry, and they feel overlooked. And it's the group that Trump's message, particularly of America First, has resonated with. How can the GOP remain true to the principles that attracted people like you without becoming vulnerable to candidates like Trump? Well, that's, I mean, that's the $64,000 question. And honestly, I think that they're choosing Trump over voters like me. I'm sort of getting realigned out of the party to some degree. For someone like me who thinks that the debt is also an existential threat to the country and a problem and something that we need to address, who thinks that, you know, innovation is the way that we're going to solve big problems uh, like climate change, who thinks that uh, actually having more immigrants come to the United States is good, that it will help us grow our economy and create, you know, uh, increase a, a tax base from a, uh, when you've got a, the, the sort of native population here not reproducing at a rate that, that provides for a lot of growth. I think that the Republican Party is going in a different 
direction from where I am. Although the the problem is, is that they still have lots of vestiges of that old party there and they were able to kind of, and here's, this is just a working theory that I have, which is I think Republicans are very excited to get Joe Biden into the White House because I think that they feel like they work somewhat better as an opposition party. They don't have necessarily an affirmative plan. And then they are, they've, they've got an unruly caucus, some of whom are sort of old school fiscal hawks and some of whom are now new populists who are going to talk about regulating the internet, but also about, hey, raising the minimum wage or pushing more working class economic policies. And so that's something that they're going to have to sort out uh, over the next few cycles. But I think you are seeing just in both parties, just a, a, both of them trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for going forward. I don't know that I find myself saying, boy, I just really want to return to the Reagan era and like, you know, move past Trump so we can all work together again. I just, I think we're past that. I think, I think I want to be, I want to look into the future and think about, okay, who's trying to actually solve problems and who's thinking critically about what we face and not just sort of engaging in partisan hackery to get through their next election and I do think we need a new generation of leadership too. I just I think we need to turn the page and and sort of get some fresh voices all through the government because I feel like in a lot of ways we're sort of stuck in the culture wars of sort of the 90s and early 2000s like in perpetuity when there's a lot of this stuff we could kind of leave in the past and move on to new new problems that face us. But whether either party is ready to confront its failings and lay the groundwork for a less partisan future is far from certain. On the Republican side, many leaders are doubling down on Trumpism. Meanwhile, a number of GOP moderates have retired since 2016. Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party is now nearly absolute. Retirements among establishment House Republicans have surged in the last 10 days, and the latest has stunned all of Washington. Congressman Will Hurd, the only black Republican in the House, a former CIA officer. It's clear that there are at least two reasons for many of these retirements. The first one is changing demographics. But it's also obvious that the president himself has been a big factor in these exits. And since then, many down-ballot candidates have won their races by emulating Trump's style. The bottom line? More than 72 million Americans voted for Trump this year, proving that Trumpism, in one form or another, isn't going anywhere. So the 2020 election made one thing very clear. Even though Donald Trump lost, there was no widespread rejection of Trump's style of leadership or what people are calling Trumpism. Do you fear the resurgence of Trump or perhaps more dangerous, the rise of a more politically savvy Trumpian figure in the foreseeable future? So Trumpism is more of a posture than it is an ethos or an ideology. And I dislike that posture intensely because it is about sort of using the levers of government just to have power. It's about a lot of disinformation and riling people up. And I'm, yeah, I'm very concerned about it uh, taking hold of the Republican Party. I think Donald Trump is going to threaten, as he already is, to run for president again in 2024. I think his kids are going like they all view the Republican Party now as something that they own almost as a brand. 
And I think that the Republican Party is really boxed in in terms of its relationship with Trump. In some ways, you know, they want to move on. Somebody else wants to try to sort of build their Nikki Haley wants to build her brand for 2024. And uh, it's going to be tough for anybody to do that as long as the specter of Trump looms so large. You know, I think it's better for the country if you get somebody like uh, potentially a Nikki Haley, who's would be sort of a fusion candidate where, you know, she's going to make a lot of concessions that I'm not going to like one bit uh, to try to attract Trump's base. But she's also going to try to pull back the moderate voters in the suburbs that the party's been uh, not doing quite as well with. But she's going to be challenged. There's going to be a lane that's going to be, you know, whether it's Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or some other version where what they're trying to do is essentially be a savvier version of Donald Trump. And you're absolutely going to see that the same way you're going to continue to see a rise on the populist left that was Bernie Sanders or to a lesser extent, Elizabeth Warren challenging the center left faction. So what do you think Trump's role in the party will be between now and the next election? Oh, I think he's going to continue to threaten to run for president in 2024. I don't necessarily think that he will, but I think he wants to have that specter out there because it's how he gains the maximum amount of attention and continues his hold not over uh, the American imagination, but also the Republican Party, which has always been the most important to him. It has always been more important to Donald Trump to own the Republican Party than it has been to sort of beat Democrats. And so, you know, he wants to ensure that he's the kingmaker. And so I think he's going to make it really difficult for Republicans who want to try to move on in one direction or another past the Trump era, because I think he's just going to continue to to have a hold of a lot of these voters. And I also think that what you're seeing from him right now, which is this sort of grievance-based, I was stabbed in the back, the election was stolen, it was rigged as an attempt to make sure that people always feel like Joe Biden and the Democrats are illegitimate and that Donald Trump is legitimate. And that, too, is is really just a mechanism about him trying to maintain his brand and power over the party. And what does that mean for the future of the never Trumpers? Well, I think that for people who've been, you know, hardcore, never Trump focused on defeating Donald Trump in this election, our interests extend beyond the future of the Republican Party. It's about the future of liberal democracy and America's role in the world. And I think that sometimes people think of us just in terms of like, well, which candidates will they support going forward? And obviously that will matter, but I I think that it won't be monolithic. I think people who sort of all lined up against Trump as Republicans are all going to do different things now. Some of them may try to work to reform the Republican Party. Some of them, like me, may focus on democracy itself. The political parties have a tremendous amount of incentive to dividing Americans, to creating these fault lines and divisions that create the kind of negative partisanship that I think is breaking us. And it papers over the fact that there's a whole bunch of things that we agree on as Americans. There's a ton of agreement on certain areas of immigration, things that could be done about climate change. I mean, there's there just is a lot of room for compromise if people are willing to sort of push into them. And I feel very lucky that Joe Biden is the candidate uh, and the person who won this election, uh, but but that he's who the Democrats nominated, because I think with him, there is a real opportunity to try to rebuild some trust and rebuild some consensus around things and get certain things done. Like nobody's passing massive policy legislation uh, around, you know, probably taxes and healthcare and things that require a lot of votes, but around coronavirus, around things where there's a lot of agreement like DACA, you could actually see a decent amount getting done that would be uh, to the great advantage of the country. And so that's the work that I'm interested in doing going forward. 
Well, thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. That was Sarah Longwell, a Republican strategist and pollster and the founder of Republican Voters Against Trump. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Berosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein. 